You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking with two outstanding guests, Margaret Goldberg and Lacey Robinson, about moving from balanced literacy to structured literacy. This is a topic everyone has big feelings about, even saying things like, this is just the next pendulum swing, or what will be next after this? Margaret and Lacey will chat with us about the realities of moving away from balanced literacy while shifting our practices to align with reading science. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we are diving in deep to a really important conversation. We know the Sold a Story podcast helped the world understand what went wrong with reading instruction and why so many kids, two-thirds of fourth graders in the United States, struggle with reading. Yeah, and we have two incredible guests to talk about that with us today. So we have Margaret Goldberg, who is from the Right to Read Project. She is currently an instructional coach and longtime classroom teacher, and she's been a guest on the podcast before. And she writes incredible blog posts. If you have not read them, check them out. And then we also have Lacey Robinson, who was featured on Sold a Story, and she's currently the president and CEO of Unbound Ed and also was a guest on our podcast before. So welcome back, you two. It's a reunion. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a big reunion party to talk about the science of reading as more than just a pendulum swing. Um, That I think is a really important thing to talk about at this place in time. So I'm hoping we can kick the conversation off with this idea that there are some things in balanced literacy that are okay. There, I, I think that's important to say out loud, to name. And I think we should talk about why, maybe even what research says to to support it. So I'm going to hand it to Lacey first because you're closest, you're next to me on the screen. So Lacey, (laughs) you want to kick us off? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a really important conversation to have. And I remember there was a moment when um, Emily and I were recording the podcast where I said to her, I think it's really important. And she very graciously says it at the end of episode four, that there are facets of balanced literacy that um, I think are really essential and important. And I would say as a former classroom teacher, uh, really helped me construct um, a very, uh, I would say, uh, viable hour, 80, 90, 180, 90 minutes in my classroom where there were specific times that we were doing word recognition recognition, and getting miles on a page and using our knowledge that we built around um, our phonemic awareness to practice our writing. And so there are pieces of balanced literacy that I think that are essential um, and It is not about crumbling up the entire schedule and what we're doing and throwing it away. It is about looking at the components of balanced literacy and matching those components to what we now know that the science of reading has taught us are essential uh, for students to be immersed in in order to continue and to start their foundational work in learning how to read. And so uh, I just think it's important that, um, that we begin to have that conversation 
um, so that we can identify it, right? As educators, like what is it that we keep and what is it that we move away from? Of course, you know, don't get me started because I'll start with the whole top of the 180 hour and walk you through the entire schedule. <laughs> I was ready Listen, to ask that. <laughs> I had I had preliminarily written down keep stop start and was like let's go so <laughs> we might be able to do that <laughs> can I I want to make a little adage though I want to say that part of this whole like pendulum swinging or this argument you know on one side I don't blame the educators that are like holding on to it so tightly let's be really honest when we all matriculate out of our either traditional uh, teacher preparation programs or the alternative teacher preparation programs, we, I would say, as an, as an edusphere, don't leave out with the right tools, techniques, and I would say ideas of how to construct reading, particularly in early grades, right? And one of the things that I know, I'm speaking personally for myself, as a person who not only enacted Readers and Writers Workshop, but, you know, worked at the Readers and Writers Workshop with Lucy Calkins and the crew, the thing that I know for a fact is that it created what I call an iOS system, right? It created a structure that if I, as a first-year teacher or a teacher who never received the information on how to construct a reading uh, session, program, hours, 180 minutes in my classroom, it actually showed me how to construct those minute to minute, that time and what to do within that time. And it's to be real, we, Lacey, that when you're a first year teacher, that's what you're concerned about is well, yeah. I, have, I have a whole day. What do I do yeah. <laughs> during that time? Yeah. <laughs> I have 27 first graders staring at me <laughs> who, at, you know, everybody knows in the morning, we usually do reading in the morning. How do I construct that time? Right. And so I think that when I think about that and people holding tight to it and saying we don't want to get rid of it, that's the first thing that comes to mind, you know? So what is it am I supposed to do within this 180 minutes with these children in order to ensure that they're gaining the momentum around their literacy development? I think one of the things that you said, Lacey, that really struck me is how do we construct reading for those early readers and especially for beginning career teachers trying to visualize what that should look like. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things when um, talking about like what should we keep from balanced literacy, the practices that are there in balanced literacy are really good for students who can already read and write. So there's attention to spending time to read and spending time to write and having access to good books and explaining clearly the process of writing and allowing there to be devoted minutes for the writing process, like building this community around literacy and talking about the books that we're reading. Like all of those things are really great for kids who can already read and write. And the question then is, what's the teaching that we provide for a little kid to learn how to get there? And that's the part where balanced literacy went wrong. Yep. Yeah. And I would say the other second thing that, that jumps out of me around that is honestly the materials, you know, as a teacher, even a first year teacher, but I would say even as a seasoned teacher, let's be honest, to have a school that has constructed a reading program where there is an insurmountable amount of books, there's a book room, there are supplies to even do writing, you know, your, 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 your uh, writing hour, you know, there, there is the supplies alone that came with balanced literacy was the other draw, right? Mm -hmm. And before that, 
nothing against, you know, don't don't send me emails and tweets about this. But before that, when I think about the basal readers, right, I'm dating myself, right? The readers that you get with the program and everybody's got the hardback and the teacher has lesson plans. I don't remember as a former classroom teacher getting an insurmountable amount of supplies with those programs. You got what was in that box and you had to work what was in that box with your students. But when I think about the libraries we constructed in our classrooms out of the the the, the vise of balanced literacy, that's what makes me tingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting is that you can have the balanced literacy school, the balanced literacy district, that there is a community that has rallied around a particular way of teaching. And it happened because they provided really engaging applicable PD for teachers, but also for administrators, so that a principal could actually really get excited about this reading initiative that they were doing. They could have ongoing professional development. They could get help walking through classrooms, knowing what to look for, knowing what kind of feedback to provide. But it actually allows you to have a focus on literacy in your school or in your district in a way that um, when it's been so curriculum focused, like a particular basal is the initiative, they're like, oh, well, the teachers just need to teach the program. But balanced literacy never said that. Balanced literacy said we need to develop teachers as educators and talk with them about their practice and continue on with professional development, even after they've launched the use of whatever curriculum we put in place. Uh, oh, Margaret, you have hit the mother load. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now. When that that that's the other half of this argument, right? That doesn't necessarily uh, happen in schools. But is it like it's like the chicken and the egg argument? I call it. Is it the curriculum or is it the professional learning? Oh yeah. And, you, and, and <laughs> oh the thing gosh. is, it is the both and. It is the both and. And you are you are hitting it right on the head. We have got to continuously provide, along with the high quality standards aligned curriculum that has the grounding of science of reading, right? In our structured literacy programs, you have to continuously provide the professional learning environment for educators, seasoned or new, to say, I don't even know what phonemic awareness is. Can I get continuous education or understanding development around that? We have to continuously create the environments for our educators to continuously grow their pedagogy and content knowledge around it. A lot of head shaking. Yes. <laughs> and I'm just going to do a quick summary of what I heard of the things that went well with balanced literacy, where it gave teachers a structure of their time during the day. It gave a ton of materials, depending on the program, but it gave a lot of materials for mostly texts we're talking about here for teachers and students. It really gave students time in quality texts, right? They were reading texts. We'll get into the nuance of that, but (laughs) they were in text. And then the teacher development that was beyond just a curriculum or a program was really valuable. So some valuable things that were a part of balanced literacy in general, but I think we're all itching to hear from you all about what were the parts of balanced literacy that are completely outside of what research says is what should be happening in a reading classroom? What should we be eliminating? What should... I mean, we have teachers who like it or not, their district says they have to teach this, right? And what are some things that they should be looking at of like, if I can make some small changes, what are the things I need to make sure that I am not doing? So I'll open the floor up to you all. (laughs) Well, I think when we were talking about what works for balanced literacy, 
what's there that's good is that it allows opportunities for practice for kids who already know how to do reading and how to do writing. So it gives them the opportunity to practice and to talk about their practice in community with other people. But when we're talking about kids who don't yet know how to read and write, the balanced literacy approach for beginning and for struggling readers isn't effective. And the reason for that is that it doesn't give enough help to the teacher or to the kids for the about the things that make reading and writing in English difficult. So there's not enough attention to a really clear, systematic, explicit scope and sequence for phonics with opportunities to practice. There isn't enough attention to grammar. So helping an English language learner, for example, understand how to construct a grammatical sentence. There isn't enough explicit instruction in vocabulary and really developing that academic vocabulary. So there's weakness that we end up seeing when we disaggregate our data and we look at the students who most need us to teach them how to access literacy. And it doesn't give teachers or kids a clear roadmap to how to go from being a non-reader, early stage reader, to getting to the point where they really can cozy up in a warm nook and (laughs) read a book and talk with somebody about it in a literature circle. And really quickly before we move away from that, can we talk about... um I mean, some of these, well, I'll just say units of study are doing updates to try and address some of that. But I know, Margaret, you have talked about this before, about it doesn't quite meet what we need. Can you talk about why that is? Um, I think one of the things that I always try to encourage people to do is when you're looking to see whether or not your curriculum is likely to get all of your kids where you want them to be, you want to be able to flip to the usually in the back of the program or there'll be a little supplemental resource that gives you the scope and sequence. And you should be able to see an explicit scope and sequence that tells you this concept first, followed by this one, followed by this one. And it's an order of high utility and simple first, getting to um, a point where you're doing more complex or more challenging work that builds on the foundation of the earlier work. We should see that for foundational skills, right? But we should see it for vocabulary too. We should know exactly what are the tier two vocabulary words that are covered in the grade three program so that the fourth grade teacher knows to be able to reference those and knows why they're showing up in the kid's writing. And the fifth grade teacher is getting kids who are well prepared for him or her by the previous year. When we have, and I was a teacher who really cared about my autonomy and my own ability to develop my own lessons. And now I look back and I'm like, no matter how good I was, I was only as good as I could be for 180 days with my kids. And 180 days is too few to have a really good plan. You need to actually have the plan from K to six and know what kids are getting and what grade level and to know that every teacher is going to be able to deliver that for the students because they have the tools to help them do it. Yeah. And I think, Margaret, what you are really sort of pressing on is is the what and the why right behind the development of reading. And I think that The thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves is that teachers, leaders need a consistent, uh, I would say, uh, uh, opportunity to keep fine tuning their understanding of that. Because what happens is there's this automatic uh, assumption that if you pass uh, a leader or or a practitioner, a reading program that might have those that has all those components that you just named in it that automatically just them throwing it open and following it is going to yield your results. And what I would respectfully say is that, yes, I could get a teacher to not vary off the lesson too, but the understanding that the teacher needs to have around the what and the why is essential 
so that they understand that it is a stair step of complexity that we're building with students in their literacy development and that missing a step has uh, an ability to cause a, a, a student to not make the progress that you want. Um, it, 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 and missing a step could be essential in whether this child is proficient moving into the next grade as a reader or not. And so I think there has to be this constant churning as w- when we're developing um, our educators. That to me is what should stop this pendulum s- from swinging, right? That it's not just one p- program or the other, but we're saying, wait a minute, let's build all of our understanding around those uh, essential components uh, that all students need, even the students who came into my classroom already reading. Uh, let's, let's build our understanding of what those essential components are and how they're at that at play in this program that I'm putting forth in front of the kids. I think what you're saying really resonates with me because when I was working as a literacy coach in Oakland Unified, where the Basil program that had been adopted during Reading First and No Child Left Behind was open court, it was thought of as the open court era. And there was a whole lot of thoughts and feelings about the open court era, but it was a period of time. Um, that ended. And when it ended, the district picked up balanced literacy. And then I was coming in and providing professional development and explicit foundational skills. And what teachers were saying, particularly veteran teachers who had been there in the open court era was, oh, this is like how we used to do it back then. And I was like, (laughs) yes, you are not wrong. They're like, oh, so this is another swing in the pendulum. And what I was trying to explain is no, what happened is you got really good, actually, professional development on the components from the National Reading Panel. You learned about how beginning reading needs to be taught. You were given tools. The way those tools were implemented and the way you were supported in implementing those tools may have been problematic, but what you had was accurate. And then because it became so curriculum focused and it became so like focused on policy and an administration instead of on teaching and what's good for kids we stopped it and picked up something else that felt better. And I think it's really important for us to know that ba- that balanced literacy wave that happened after reading first and no child left behind never should have happened. If we had really focused on the adult learning about the national reading panel, if we had really focused on why beginning reading needs to be taught explicitly and systematically, we would have looked at those materials and been like, it's not going to do it for our kids. And in fact, a lot of veteran teachers in Oakland knew that. (laughs) And they're like, I'm not even picking that up. I'm holding on to my old program. You're not taking this basil away from me because I know it works. Yep. Margaret, I think like even now there are programs that are not good for kids on the market. Like I just, I think that's really important to say too, that like just because we know more and we've learned more. And I mean, we knew it back then, but it's coming to light now again, um, that there are, are, are materials out there that are misaligned and, and districts that are adopting them. Yeah. And just because it's new doesn't mean it's better or more aligned with what's currently known about what's good for kids. Yep. Yeah. and I think, Lori, we've talked about this in a, in a former, uh, in the former podcast that I did. I think a lot of that goes back down to the leader educator education. And I, and I don't just mean the people that are making the curriculum decisions at the district level. I mean, even my building leaders, like to understand what it is that you should be looking for when the program is either, cause you don't always make the decision about the program, correct? But when, right. you, when the program is being given to you and you're looking at, uh, the components of that program. First of all, I tell all my leaders, 
tell you need to see where it was derived from. What what research was used to create it? First of all, second of all, you should be geared up. I'm not saying you have to be an expert in literacy, but even just understanding the components, even understanding what the science of reading is will allow those spidey hairs in the back of your neck to stand up when you're past a curriculum that you know is not sufficiently supporting uh, creating an opportunity for all students to develop their, those literacy skills. And so like the leaders have to understand that and understand that it's not about becoming an expert, but building your own repertoire around what you should be looking for. And can I just, I think one thing I've heard some is that it's just three queuing, that it's just, you know, if we just, okay, keep doing what you're doing, but like take the three queuing out, like then we're fine. Right. That's currently happening here where I live. And it's <laughs> like, the, but they're not even acknowledging three queuing like globally yet. So like it is happening. I just, yes. Sorry to interrupt you, Melissa. No, that's just my, I just want to like, be clear, like Lacey, you're saying like, what? well, what else should we be looking for? Because I know some people are like, oh, well, just just don't do the three queuing part and we're well, good. Well, I think, and I would love to hear what Lacey has to say about what else in addition to three queuing. I just want to say before that, that I think um, we are very resistant to talk about how deeply rooted three queuing is in balanced literacy materials. So if we're going to say it's just three queuing, <laughs> it is just three queuing in that it is embedded in the phonics units of study that have not been revised. It's embedded in the leveled books that teachers have spent so much time and money organizing all those book bins and those giant libraries. It is embedded in so many of the intervention programs, reading recovery, level uh, literacy intervention, all of those programs. It is embedded in our assessments. So that means we're now pulling out things like the leveled reading assessments, the benchmark assessments or DRA. Like when you start taking out all of the things in which uh, 3Qing lives, you are left with very little left. So right. Lacey can add on to that, but I'm just going to say once you, once you push all of that stuff to the side, there's not a lot left. Yeah, Go ahead, Lacey. And then, and then let's talk about the mindset that's along with it. I mean, listen, I was the pusher. I, I admit that. I said it in the podcast. But, um, you know, talking about the just right book and my kid putting a book on like a pair of jeans and being able to and not talking about the cycle that you put a child in, never giving them an opportunity, uh, even with a child that's missing foundational concepts and skills and literacy. If you're a first grader, you still should have an opportunity to be grounded in first grade literacy, even as I'm helping you build those literacy skills. And so it's the mindset that also went, went along with that three queuing system that we also have to begin to pay attention to, you know? Yes. And it's this lack of urgency. Like when you're talking about how it's, we're going to put the kid in the leveled books and they're going to mm -hmm. meander their way towards a higher level, we hope. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that is so concerning to me is that balanced literacy speaks about being very child focused. Like we observe the child, we observe the child's reading behaviors. We talk about what we noticed in the child. But the thing that's missing is that we're the adult and we should have the clear plan for how to get the kid from one point to the next point, instead of just hoping that they're going to work their way there as we observe. Mm -hmm. And I think any teacher who has taught balanced literacy for any more than one year We'll be able to tell you, we always have kids who get stuck in particular levels. They mm -hmm. always get stuck in level D. They always yep. get stuck in first grade if they haven't had solid um, CVC phonics yeah. instruction when they're in the lower grade. Um, we always have kids who have a hard time um, 
adjusting to the higher levels if they haven't been explicitly taught some of the more complicated sentence structures that you'll find in actual real authentic books. So one of the things that is problematic in balanced literacy is this, the child will develop him or herself at their own pace. And we don't need to feel any sort of urgency about getting them there because we're the guide on the side who's watching them grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you, literally I had a flashback of a group of kids in one of my first grade classrooms that just felt like we were on the rinse cycle for the just entire stuck. year. Just yeah. stuck. And, and yeah. you know what? So I want to I want to keep reiterating this because I think this is really important. You know, you just made a comment, uh, Margaret, about it, it seems like it's child centered. Well, let's be real about it. It, it is adult centered. But I'm going to go back to the adage. It's adult centered because we're not preparing them. Listen, I mentioned this in the podcast. I say this uh, in the book that we have coming out. You know, I was exposed to uh, the science of reading before I even knew it was the science of reading. Right. I did my internship at the Marvel Collins School. She was an open court mm-hmm. proponent. Right. I watched students in a second, third grade combined classroom reading literature that I hadn't met till I was in high school. OK, now. The thing is, is that those, even watching that, even spending a residency, even coming out of it, knowing about the components that are needed that are central for reading. When I went to become a first year teacher in a classroom in Georgia, I wanted to enact it so bad, but I didn't know. I did not have the background knowledge about foundational concepts and skills. I certainly didn't know the components of reading. I'd never heard of Scarborough's rope. I didn't know anything about the neuroscience and how the brain develops. Why are some students coming in already learning how to read in first grade and other students aren't? And so it was easy for me to dive back into what I was past. And let's be honest, as a building leader, as district leaders, when you yourself don't have an understanding, you will purchase materials that you think It's just the best plug and play that you can give. And what I am respectfully asking people is let's acknowledge that we all have to build our understanding around the science of reading, what structured reading programs look like in schools, and what does remediation look like in supporting the students that during that structured reading time still need that extra support or push and the ideology. Because here's the thing I'm also noticing. We'll have a school that says, all right, no more balanced literacy. We're going we're gonna to purchase a, a, a program that is highly regarded, that has all the components of science of reading. But then when you look at their uh, pullout program, their remediation, <laughs> it's a three killing system. Yep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that, to me, is a signal, which I say to leaders all the time. Do you realize that these programs are philo- philosophically opposed to each other? You are yep. causing havoc. Because yes. you because you have to develop your own understanding of what is needed. Yes. Sorry, and I just want to add on, like in the district that I am in currently, we have units of study as the district adopted curriculum. And then in order to improve it, they've adopted a standalone phonics program for tier two and three. And one of the things that I really want to try to get everybody thinking about and talking about is that if you think about it from the kid's perspective, Like what I'm doing in the classroom is telling me that I have a lot of different opportunities for how to identify what a word might be. But then I go to intervention for a particular number of minutes. And in intervention, they tell me to do this thing that's really hard for me where I'm supposed to sound out words. I'm not really into it because it's really challenging for me, which is why I'm in intervention. (laughs) And then I go back into the classroom and the classroom uh, environment reinforces for me that my intervention wasn't that important. 
that it was its own little maybe 30 minute block during the day where reading is approached differently. It's hard and challenging. I go back into my uh, classroom and I just try to avoid reading whenever possible. And I think it's really important for building leaders, district leaders to actually look at the instructional plan that they're creating and wonder what does the kid take from this? What do they understand? And I think the easiest way to find that information, and I would strongly encourage anybody at the district office level, is go into a school and find a kid who is at risk of reading difficulty and follow that kid for a day and find out what they're encountering and whether or not it's a good use of their time. Because otherwise, you're just looking at the names of programs and being in the sales materials and thinking, oh, it looks pretty good. Right. Also thinking about how to create a cohesiveness within that. Like what you just said rang so many bells, especially for me here, Margaret. We are unit of study district as well. Um, when the students get – so the baseline tier one is units of study all day from K through eight. When they – when a student who's struggling gets pulled out, I've been in the schools, peeked in the book room, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, sometimes they get more of the same. And sometimes they get something that is a better intervention that is aligned to reading science research. However, I took on working with a child who is moderately dyslexic to try to see like, what does this look like, like in his day and what happens? Like the progress is slower because all day long, it's just complete conflict. And then I'm coming in and I'm saying, Hey, remember when you're taught to guess a word. When you're taught to look at the picture, you don't want to do that. Here's why. And I'm, it, it, it's just, it's, you're, comp- you're backpedaling and then you're trying to drive forward and then you're backpedaling and trying to move forward. Right. And the and kid is, is like, who do I listen to? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's, it's a lot. Um, and I, I, I really echo what you said earlier about the, it's just so adult centered with that feeling and thinking. I see that a lot. I, you know, when I'm, trying to speak at a board meeting or whatever it might be to advocate personally. Um, the things that I'm up against are very much like, I hear words like, Lacey, I feel like you've said this on the podcast too. I hear words like, my students love, oh, or yeah. I feel, I mm-hmm. think. I believe. Right? And I believe. Oh. <laughs> right. And I, I'm like, this shows <laughs> the data tells us the research says, and I'm like, am I going crazy? <laughs> because yeah. it's just so not focused on what the reality is of research and, and grounding us in that. Well, and I think the thing that was helpful for me when I was meandering my way through, um, was to realize that when I looked at um, research and when I looked at evidence-based materials and when I attended those kinds of trainings, what they promised were better outcomes. And what would happen is even um, when I would sit in a balanced literacy training for the intervention I was supposed to implement, and they tell me it's an accelerative program, the child will make progress in 16 weeks. And if they don't, you'll exit them from the program. But you're going to, in those 16 weeks or 18 weeks, you are going to see them come to grade level. And it wouldn't happen. And people were just really used to the idea that some kids are never going to get there. And what happens when you start looking at evidence-based approaches is they're like, oh, you have a kid who's not making the progress that you'd like. Have you tried this? Or have you approached this? Have you done this assessment to determine whether X, Y, or Z is an area of difficulty? 
And what I realized is when I was in balanced literacy trainings, there was a real fear of talking about kids not getting it. We were supposed to be asset-based, which meant focusing on what the kid is able to do. So no, they're not paying attention to the visual features of the word, but look, they're paying attention to the meaning and the syntax. Let's focus on their assets. And that actually is, um, I hate to use the word gaslighting, but I don't know what other term to use where you're just kind of communicating like we don't talk about struggle. And in fact, when I talk with teachers who are deeply entrenched in balanced literacy, the word struggling readers is offensive. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that a kid could be struggling means you're not looking at their assets enough. And this is actually deeply disturbing because we should be able to say like the kid's having a hard time, whatever word we use for it, they're having a hard time and it's our responsibility to fix it for them and we need to believe we can. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, if you even look at the very concept, let's think about this. We've all walked into a balanced literacy classroom. OK, when you think about even the concept of the environment that they create, it is all about the feeling. It's the book nook. It's the lighting. It's the way the books are organized. It's the and, you know, I will tell you the the, the biggest line I get the most flack <laughs> pushback in the in the in the uh, podcast uh, sold a story is when I said the love comes later. <laughs> And it's I, my and favorite. I, and I, and it's I my favorite really, too. I really mean that. And and that to me is also just a very adult-centered piece. Listen, I also as a classroom teacher, you all know this, you want an environment that is warm, that is welcoming. You want an environment where students feel like one of the most greatest joys I had, because I love to read, was when I allowed my kids that sort of open reading time where you got to choose a spot and a book and a partner and sit. Who doesn't enjoy that? What I have a problem with is that how much enjoyment is a child getting who is a struggling reader? And by the, by the way, they know they're struggling. It's not mm-hmm. a secret. I don't care if you don't want to mention it. How much enjoyment are they actually getting out of it? And, and as, a, as an educator, to me, I think that, again, it goes back to asking ourselves, what is it that you're actually really comfortable with and why? Why mm-hmm. are you comfortable with it? And, and I think that when we begin to ask these hard questions, we can start to admit, you know what, to be honest with you, I myself will say, again, I started off in grounding in the science of reading. I saw the evidence of brown and black students who, quote unquote, don't meet the, the actual criteria. When we look at these were students of low socioeconomic status. Why would they be reading at a sixth, seventh grade level in second and third grade, right? But I got to a system. I didn't know the components. And when I was handed the balanced literacy program, it gave me the structure of how to do my day. And it made me feel good because I felt like I knew what I was doing. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I think that one of the forms of struggle that we're very uncomfortable with in the balanced literacy world is the productive struggle of a child feeling challenged by the words that are on the page and trying to sound those words out to pronounce the word and then be like, oh, I just read that word. Yes. And I think um, we are pushing for kids to appear like skilled readers too soon. So we want them to be fluent readers from the very start. We want to give mm-hmm. them books where they're going to sound fluent from the beginning, even though they can't read the words in the book. And one of the things that I loved in Soul to Story is that my kiddo Kamari is reading with me. We were on Zoom and I'm having him sound out words as part of his lesson. And you can hear the joy in his voice when he pronounces the word smiling. And I think what 
I love about that moment that's captured is that that this grunting and groaning, slow sounding out of words, it is so painful. It is painful for me. I spent hours with this kid every day. We're working for so many words, like trying to get him to the point where he's becoming more fluent. And he could see his progress. I could see his progress. I could see his data. He was getting more skilled. You could hear the moment of excitement when he's worked his way through a tricky word. And that comfort with productive struggle is something that doesn't exist in the typical balanced literacy mm-hmm. classroom. In mm-hmm. the typical balanced literacy classroom, we shy away from kids doing the thing that's hard for them mm-hmm. and acknowledging that it's hard for them and helping them with it and showing them that they're capable. Mm-hmm. You, I, I believe, so I'm going to tell you a root cause of that. I think that that is, Margaret. It goes back to that three queuing system. Oh, yeah. If you're, if you're a teacher and you're sitting at your kidney table and you got the small group and all the books are open, right? And they're, and they're reading at the level that you're, that you're trying to get them to you know, move up to. And you're saying like, look at the picture, look at the word, look at the picture, look at the word. And they're not guessing it right or they're not, and you yourself have not been skilled up on those components and the foundations and understanding the science of reading, then in your mind, the struggle has more to do with them than your own understanding of what you should be doing. Right. Because you don't. Yeah. 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 And And that's why we focus on feelings a lot. I think. Yes. Right. Well, like you said, you don't, you don't need to love, but you need to do. You need, <laughs> you need to, to be do. able to do. And I think that moment that Margaret's talking about when you hear the excitement, when you hear, okay, so let's be real. We know that there are students that are coming in with their foundational concepts and skills that the three queuing system has tricked us into believing that that is what is moving them forward. And you as a teacher, you feel good, especially as a first, second year teacher. You know, you're like, okay, they're reading. And then you get to the struggling reader. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. No knock against new teachers who say, well, if he would just slow down and think. Well, if Mm -hmm. she would just slow down and think. And I'm like. Or judgments of how much effort the child's putting in. Yes. Yes. First of all, can anybody stop thinking? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, only during during yoga. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that very that very notion. And I just um, again, I think it's about arming them with the understanding, arming them with their own skill set, their own pedagogical understanding what scaffolding is, understanding about productive struggle, you know, and and how that works actually for a student. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's that that is where we stop, again, this pendulum from swinging. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, something that um, occurred to me when I was thinking about this struggle and trust, knowing that it's productive because you're using evidence-based strategies, you're using um, objective data to be able to tell you whether or not the kid is on the right trajectory. You've got that in place. And I think for me, what happened um, with Kamari that was really powerful is that at the end of the school year, he was going to go to a different school and reading had been really challenging all throughout first grade. We worked really hard. He got intensive intervention. And we wanted just to make sure that if he needed an IEP going forward, that we would put that documentation in place before he switched school. And so we did a battery of assessments and we gathered together for the SST meeting. And I remember the specialist talking about how he doesn't qualify because he got early intervention and he's above the cut points. And to realize that he had dodged a label as a black boy, he had dodged a label of special education because he got the instruction that he needed in the primary grades. 
And I don't think enough teachers have had the experience of realizing that difficulty is on the spectrum. And it's not that like a kid is, uh, has a learning disability or not. It's right. that there's a spectrum of difficulty. And if we provide really good early interventions, there's a good portion number of kids will not need intervention later on mm-hmm. that we're doing this preventative dose. Um, but you need a lot of confidence to be able to go ahead and do that. <laughs> and I don't think enough teachers are given the support and tools and resources necessary to help kids bypass this track towards um, the need for special services they could have avoided. Literally, when you said that, I'm like, before we consider, we think deeply about the student intervention, you need the teacher intervention. Oh, we yeah. Need to, which is the other thing that I often ask building leaders, how many of you have assessed where your teacher's understanding and knowledge is about uh, a, a structured literacy program or the science of reading, how many of you know who you're working with in the building and what their background is, it should not be just the sole literacy coach that's coming in. You have to begin to build that background for everyone. So I think that's, a, that's an important point. I, can I just make a little plug though? I do want to say this. Please. Um, you know, I literally just had this conversation with a concerned parent the other day um, who is an African-American woman, young. She has a daughter who uh, just tested in the school around and the, and the test has come back that um, the, the, the child is on the spectrum for dyslexia, right? Like, and what I said to the mom was like, look, it's not about, we don't want, first of all, labels should not be given at, you know, across the board. And if your child uh, has, uh, has, been, has been identified, right? as having an implication that needs it, that's the other thing you don't want to avoid, right? Like you want to be able to feel empowered to go to the school and say, listen, my child is not making uh, sufficient enough uh, growth. You know, is it my student? Is it the teacher? So I just, I have to make that plug because a lot of parents of color, while I agree, a lot of students have received that label far and wide, but I also want them to feel empowered to advocate for their students and whether or not their students do truly have a learning disability that yeah. should be identified. I'm so glad you said that because I think one of the things that if we're just going to talk candidly about things that need to get improved, <laughs> another thing that needs to get improved is that schools generally are very comfortable with communicating with families about behavioral disruptions that are happening in the classroom. So if the child's behavior is not in line with what the teacher wants, the idea of the phone call home is very comfortable. The idea should actually be the same way when we're talking about academic struggle. And if we talked more about kids' academic needs and engage families more in discussing how their kids are progressing and whether or not they're keeping up with the expectations of each grade level, we actually would fix a lot of the behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that enough attention is paid to the fact that we are willing to look at some of the symptoms of reading difficulty without really looking at the root cause. And if you have any sort of opportunity to watch what it's like to be in a school day for a kid who can't read and there is Mm -hmm. just everything around them announcing to them that they're not able to do this thing that other kids are doing, Mm -hmm. of course, they're going to have thoughts and feelings about Mm -hmm. it. And some of it's going to come to the surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, the other kids are also going to know what that child can and can't do. Like, I just want to make sure we say that. Like, yeah. My own child can tell me who in her class is struggling and she has never been privy to a piece of assessment data other than what happens during reading time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the scarlet letter. 
And I'm yeah, so glad you all brought this up too, because I mean, I taught sixth grade, so it's a little bit different, but you know, I mean, I had a lot of students who were not reading at grade level in sixth grade and, you know, me as a teacher in, I always say that I have about 55 minutes with 35 kids <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and a grade level curriculum to teach. And I, I felt like often, you know, the only course of action was to go down the route of recommending them for an IEP. And I always felt like, that's, that does not feel like the most productive. I do not think all of these students need IEPs, but they do need something more than what I can offer them here in this, you know, sixth grade classroom of less than an hour a day. <laughs> they need some, they need something else. And, and that, that was always really hard as a teacher. And, and I know other places I'm sure have more robust tier two, tier, tier three that can help those students. I was in a place that didn't, and I'm sure there are other people that your hands are a little bit tied and it's hard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I always say to me, uh, the te- the hardest teacher to sort of disrupt the thinking around the struggling reader to me is the, is the honestly, is the teacher that's after third grade. You know, it's like, well, I inherited these kids. They're struggling readers. You know, I, I forget the early childhood teachers that didn't get that didn't get the opportunity to build their skill set. But like as we move upward in grade, like there's an assumption that you don't need that. And mm-hmm. and I know that when as a middle school principal, I remember I made the decision to hire a seventh grade teacher who came out of early childhood and she was a reading specialist. You know, because I was like, we we have children in this building who maybe have not been identified that we're thinking about IEPs. And I need you to bring that skill set into the building, not just for those kids, but I need you to teach the teachers the foundational concepts and skills of development of reading so they understand what prerequisites our students are actually missing. That. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually what you're describing is so <laughs> ringing true for me for my school year this year, because I've been teaching fifth and sixth graders in our um, intervention program. And one of the things that's been so striking to me about it is that it is the same kinds of lessons that are happening in the primary grades, right? Like they are learning CVC words. They are learning how to read with the final E. They are learning these concepts, but they're big to be learning these concepts. They're big kids. And one yeah. of the things that's so cool is that they're actually able to articulate what they're realizing about their reading because they're old enough and mature enough to be like, oh. <laughs> and one of the things that broke my heart was when one of the girls said, why didn't anyone tell me this? Right. And I think to have the realization that we need to address kids who are in the upper grades with the same knowledge, they need to get the same set of skills that a kindergarten, first grader, second grader needs to get, but we need to give it in a way that's representative of their age, that's reflective of their maturity and yeah. allow them the opportunity and their intellect. to talk, their mm-hmm. intellect, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the fact that they're now realizing something had been withheld from them for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is... We, yeah. Go, Go for ahead, it, Lacey. No, I was going to say, this is going to sound so pie in the sky, you all, but I think about this all the time. I wish there's a day where we are not only providing uh, uh, efficient, sufficient uh, research, scientific back, uh, <laughs> the lit- building literacy in students, but I wish we would have workshops for parents because I'm telling you, there are parents out there that struggle in reading, that have learned how to get by, that have mm-hmm. said, you know what, I'm better in mathematics. I literally just had this conversation with an adult a couple of days ago. I'm, I'm just a math person. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're a literacy person too. And by the way, everyone's a math person. Everyone's a literacy <laughs> person. Your brain is not a fixed state. 
<laughs> right? Like you're as, as much as you want to been told that and you actually believe it. And I think that when we get as adults, the opportunity to confess that I'm not as strong as reader as I know that I should be, we then start to see um, the kind of impact that could have with our student, with our children. Right. And I just, I wish we had a world where we had, you know, systems that said, Hey, guess what? We're offering these night courses for you as an adult to strengthen your literacy development. Absolutely. And I think there's a particular person who pops into mind. We were running a program of parent tutors where they were learning how to provide explicit phonics instruction to little kids at their school. And one of the parent tutors started going home and teaching her husband how to read. Mm -hmm. And she's like, he can read the street signs now. (laughs) We were talking about how exciting that was. And I think one of the things that I would love for teachers and for everyone in education to realize is that there are a good portion of people who can't read. And it's not because they are incapable of reading. It's because we didn't teach them. And if we do teach them, they actually have the opportunity at any stage of life to be able Mm -hmm. to have a lot of access to information that had been withheld. It's really important. Tier one, I think K through 12, K through college, yes, (laughs) K through everything, um, that we are hitting all of these science of research components um, and that we are not going to like stop and do workshop model for grades three and above because that still isn't addressing reading science or we're, you know, Mm -hmm. we're still lacking in some major pieces and and I'll name a few, right? Writing disconnected to reading. Oh yes. (laughs) A a lack of fluency instruction, Mm -hmm. um, comprehension skills and isolation, randomized content, right? It's just like random choices Mm -hmm. of content. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that we, we like kind of bring it together by really pulling in those ideas that like, yes, uh, all these foundational skills and like Margaret, you mentioned that voca- systematic, systematic vocabulary instruction, yep. really important in K2, all grades <laughs> as well, um, if needed. But the tier one is the way we're going to get at this problem. And mm-hmm. and then we fill in tier one gaps after that. So I, I'll just throw that out there for you to, to react to. I'm having such a visceral reaction to this because <laughs> I feel like um, how many times have we heard, particularly let, let's talk about middle school or we talk about high school. And you're like, these kids, these kids came in with that was an early childhood problem. That was. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like until we start to understand, you know, it's just like as an educator, um, we all listen. I don't think anybody would argue that educators need to know what a component of a lesson is, right? Whether you're teaching K to 12, it should be the same around uh, the science of reading, the, 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 the essential components for reading. I think K-12 needs to have the understanding whether you put it at play or not, you should be able to identify it. I make this association all the time. It's like you going to the doctor and you, you having a cold and he checks your foot and you're like, why are you checking my foot? I'm coughing from my chest. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't get that when I was in medical school. I only got from the kneecap down. You would run out of the doctor's office. 
You know, you would you would tell it out of there. It's the same thing in education. We have a Gray's Anatomy of information in education that all K-12 educators need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's high time that we, one, as systems, start to gather the information of where are the gaps in the knowledge and skill sets of our educators that we need to shore up. And we need to start pushing our systems that are certifying and training teachers that they start with this this body of knowledge. It, it, it is it's the components, it's the awareness of curriculum. What is a high quality curriculum? What should you be looking for? How should it be enacted? All of these pieces need to become the standards that we're asking all educators to come in with. We get them armed with that and we give them the opportunity to put it in practice with guidance. We will begin to see the seismic shift in education that we've been looking for, for all students. I happen to think, now this this is the world according to Lacey, (laughs) that the big hairy problem that we have in education, the predictability of student achievement by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status is a symptom of what the other issue is in education. And that is the underdevelopment of us as professionals, number one. That is part of the symptom. The other system we know has to do with the isms and the uh, systemic bias and racism that we all smell and inhale. But those two things are things that we absolutely can contend with and eliminate and do something about. And and I struggle with, you know, we talk about uh, the struggling reader in school. Well, Melissa, Laurie, you went to the premiere of uh, 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 The Truth About Reading. Look at an adult. Look at what an adult has to do in order to gain literacy. It's the same thing you see in early childhood. I happen to think that we show that film to more people. They will begin to understand that tier one, everybody has to get exposed to this, Um, particularly in a country that touts itself um, as one of the leaders of the world. I love everything that Lacey said. And I think the only thing I would add on to it is that the thing we should be using to identify whether or not tier one is, is effective is if it's working for the vast majority of our students. And if we can push out all of the like, but I like this, but I believe this, but this feels fun, but I've been doing this for years, but, 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 but. If we push that to the side and we just look, is it working for our kids? And by that, I mean, not just like, does our student data on state tests look good? But also when we pull families and ask if they are supplementing our school instruction with tutoring, is the answer no, because our tier one instruction is so effective that they're not seeing the need for this kind of supplementation to classroom instruction. That's Mm -hmm. when we know we've actually got the first tier of instruction right. Well, we could not have asked for better guests. I really think you two should come take over our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I want there to be a podcast that's the world according to Lacey. Oh, no. No, no, no. You'd be so so good at it, Lacey. My family would would boycott that before we even hit the air. (laughs) That's because they already get to be a part of it. What about those of us who don't? (laughs) Yes, yes. I am here for it. Well, I just, you know what? I want to thank you, Lori and Melissa, honestly, for continuing to push this conversation. I cannot tell you, and I'm sure, Margaret, you get this as well on a daily basis. I get not only from students and parents, but also adults that are struggling struggling with illiteracy and like what 
the podcast and all of this attention has brought to them, um, people that are professions, doctors, uh, you would be shocked at how people have been able to compensate, right, mm-hmm. for their struggling in reading. And I just think it's it's the pendulum will stop when we realize that it's not a war, you yes. know, that w- how you started this conversation, it could be a both and when we are choosing um, the scientific backed research uh, methodology, when we're thinking about those structures that we're putting bef- before students, and most importantly, when we're really identifying where we begin to support leaders and teachers in their own development and understanding. Um, so I just think, you know, I say it all the time, the war is over. We have the information. The pendulum has stopped. We stop. We, as long mm-hmm. as we stop pushing it back and forth, it will cease to swing. Um, so I just thank you all for just taking time out to, um, to continue the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the ways that we will actually get to the point where the pendulum has completely stopped is because once you know how to teach a kid to read, there is no going back to the other way. (laughs) Like once you actually know how to do it and you're like, I know that I can promise I will get these kids here. If I do these things, you're not, there's no reason to change it. (laughs) Yeah. No, no. Yeah. So good. Thank you. All right. No more pendulum swings. We're here. (laughs) Stopping them. (laughs) Thank you all for being here. We can't thank you enough. You're both amazing. And we are grateful for everything that you do. So good to talk with you again. Yes. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.